Welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, I will be speaking with Sagato Data. Sagato is Managing Director of Ideas42, a non-profit organization that uses insights from behavioral science to improve social programs' positive impacts. Behavioral science has become an increasingly important component of policymaking around the world, but it is also much contested. We talk about what behavioral science can bring to social policy, what positive impacts have been achieved, and also what some of the pitfalls and challenges are. Sagato, thank you very much for making the time today to talk to us. As I understand it, Ideas42 is a nonprofit that applies behavioral science to solve social problems or to have social impact. Now, in a nutshell, what does behavioral science mean? What does it do? I think the easiest way to think about it is that behavioral science is the science, if you will, or the discipline that studies the way people make decisions and take actions. So it looks a lot at the context within which human beings act and tries to understand and unpack the things that drive them to either do or not do things. And, you know, that in some ways is what a lot of social science, I think, does. And so really where behavioral science sort of differs from other disciplines is that it is in by nature sort of interdisciplinary. It draws a lot on economics, certainly, but it draws a lot on psychology. It draws increasingly on um, subjects like neuroscience, which go even deeper into sort of the foundations of human decision making. And so what it tries to do is really understand some of the things we see people do that sometimes seem odd to us and odd to us in the sense that they may not always line up with the way that people think about what they should be doing, or they may not actually line up with what people even say that they set out to do. And so there are a lot of these kinds of gaps between people's intentions and actions that behavioral science tries to help us understand. And as applied behavioral scientists, I think a lot of what we do is to use the knowledge that we've built up in this field to then say, okay, if things are happening in this way, are there things that could be done differently? And particularly, could we change the situation or the context in which people make decisions and decide what to do and then do it to actually help them uh, sort of follow up in some sense on what they may have already decided to do or, you know, make clear decisions or take actions that are more in keeping with their sort of stated goals. And so how does all this relate to poverty then? What is the relevance of behavioral science in thinking about people living in poverty? So one thing to maybe begin with is that uh, at least, you know, behavioral science sort of sets itself up as sort of uncovering these um, universal attributes among in people. And of course, as we know, people are, are different. There are a variety of things that, that differ about people's circumstances. So the foundation is a bunch of things that we found that sort of across the board, people exhibit certain tendencies or people are subject to certain kinds of what we think of as cognitive biases. So they they may respond to certain stimuli in sort of ways that are fairly predictable. So all of this yet doesn't talk about poverty and doesn't talk about sort of the differences between living in affluence, wealth, you know, comfort, poverty. Now where it all sort of then starts to intersect with how we understand poverty is that 
one thing that behavioral science has found is that living in a state of scarcity, and that scarcity could be scarcity of time, it could, but it could also be scarcity of resources, which is how we you know, think about poverty, that actually exacerbates many of the things that all people are subject to. So one way to think about it is one sort of common finding in behavioral sciences, when things are um, not right in front of us, we don't pay attention to them. So this applies to everyone. However, when somebody is living in poverty, what we find is this tendency is further exacerbated, essentially because when you're living in poverty, you are trying to accomplish a lot of things with far fewer resources than other people. And so it's, it's even harder for someone who lives in poverty to make certain kinds of decisions. And specifically where this really shows up is it's hard for everyone to make sort of long-term decisions. And so that could be things about, you know, decisions about things like, you know, saving for the future or investing in one's health or taking certain precautions. But when you are living in a state of scarcity, so when you're poor, those decisions become even harder. And so this is partly why behavioral science is particularly relevant to the, to the situation of people in poverty, because it sort of recognizes that there's a sense in which poverty itself makes decision-making harder. And so it begins to explain certain patterns that we might see, where we might look at people living in poverty and say, this is an obviously good thing for somebody to be doing. Why are they not doing it? And I think historically, we've tended to sort of essentially blame people in some way for not taking these obviously beneficial actions. And what behavioral science says is that you can't blame them for it because in fact, their situation itself is making it hard for them at a cognitive level to take those decisions because there's this concept of cognitive bandwidth, which is the amount of sort of space we have in our minds essentially. And if you think about poverty, it's like your cognitive bandwidth is eaten up by things that you have to take care of, which if you were not as poor, would sort of be taken care of for you. And so there are many more sort of basic things that poor people have to expend cognitive energy on and use up their cognitive space to do, which richer people simply don't because you know they don't have to worry about it. And so in this way, actually poverty impedes long-term decision-making and that in turn then you know, leads to all the sorts of things you might expect when we're not able to make longer term decisions. And so I think that intersection between this sort of finding about scarcity and what behavioral science sort of already understands about people's general tendencies makes it particularly applicable to people living in poverty. Okay. So maybe thinking about an example, paying into a pension plan, for example, right. you said people generally don't think very well about the long term. So I imagine it's a problem in general across the population to convince people of the importance of thinking about the future and paying into mm -hmm. some sort of pension plan. But that this may be even more difficult for people in poverty, of course, partly because they have less funds to pay into a plan. Right but also because thinking about that is even more constrained because they have so many other pressures to think about on a day-to-day -day basis. Exactly. I think th those are exactly the kinds of things. So we'll often see that certain things that are, that they're sort of in general cognitively hard because they require us to perhaps make a sacrifice right now and get a benefit of the future. Everyone has trouble with that. But then when you are already poor, what you're do what's happening is that you're using up your mental bandwidth on sort of day-to-day -day tasks that are easier for other people. And so you're even, you're going to be even more, uh, less likely, sorry, to invest in those longer term things. So any kind of saving for the future is an example, but also things like education. 
or generally human capital investments have this sort of similar feature when you think about the present future trade-off. They require you to put in effort or time or money right now in anticipation of a future benefit. And that future benefit is quite a long way away. And that's one of the reasons why these are actually quite hard for anyone to do. They require to exercise sort of patience and putting off immediate gratification for future gratification. But if you're poor, then this becomes even harder. And so we see all of these patterns. For example, patterns of spending on nutrition, which might look at first glance as if this person you know, doesn't have a lot of money and they're in fact spending some of it on things that aren't very healthy, the not very healthy thing may actually be quite gratifying in the moment and may fulfill an immediate need. And so resisting that is going to be that much harder for somebody who has financial constraints. And so I think one way in which this plays out specifically about things like saving is obviously one factor is that you simply don't have enough money, as you were saying. But even controlling for that, we tend to find that there's even less participation when you are when you're poor. And so it's harder than, it sort of is this cycle then, because it then gets harder for people to get out of that kind of poverty because they're not being able to take advantage of such resources as may exist. And, and of course, sometimes we have to acknowledge that they simply don't. You know, one of the foundational studies in applied behavioral science that speaks to this point is a study that Esther Duflo and others had done about fertilizer use in Kenya. And what they were finding was that people weren't, so farmers weren't investing in fertilizer for the next season. And when you ask them, the reason that they gave you was that it was expensive and they sort of didn't have the money. But when you dug deeper, what you found was what it really meant was they didn't have the money at the time they needed to make the investment, which was not the time when they received their income. So farming is this very, it's a very seasonal activity, right? So I might be getting some income now, but really my next planting season is six months away. And that's when I need the fertilizer. And so it's actually not so much about how much money I have overall as it's how much money do I have when the planting season comes around and keeping money aside for that planting season, that's the cognitively demanding task that if you are a subsistence farmer who doesn't have a lot of mental space to think about all of this, you're not going to be able to do, even though you actually might have been able to put that money aside when you had it, but you're going to spend it on other more pressing needs. And so they were able to sort of design intervention which said, well, what if you could just commit right now? And when you have the money and when you in fact, momentarily have more cognitive space. Think about these things. So that brings me to the next question, which is about the intervention that you and Ideas42 work on to try and help people make well, better or more positive decisions in their lives and try to circumvent these issues. What kind of programs have you worked on in different places across the world? So we've worked on a, quite a wide variety of things. Some of the work that we've done has been in the area of health around facilitating decision-making around health. For example, decisions around the uptake of contraception or the use of contraception. And there often we're operating at this margin where people may have made a decision to do something and then are having, having trouble sort of sticking to it. A woman may have decided that an injectable contraceptive is what she wants to use. And she may even get the first iteration of that. But then at some point, you have to go back and you have to get it again. And those are the kinds of decisions that in some ways life gets in the way of. And so can we design, for example, certain kinds of reminders or certain ways of helping people plan how they would do things in the future? So one of the interesting things we, you know, there was a project we were working on in um, Ethiopia around this issue of discontinuation of contraceptives. And one thing that turned out to be the case is that women 
in that setting, since rural Ethiopia, they had relatively limited mobility. It was important to be able to tie the visit to the clinic in with other activities that they both had to do, but also had sort of permission to do in some sense. And so helping them plan it in a way that tied up with market days, for instance, so that they would be leaving their village to go to the nearby town anyway, those sorts of things proved to be useful. Another big area of work has been around cash transfer programs. Cash transfer programs are very interesting because they momentarily relieve some of that resource constraint that we were just talking about. These are programs where some amount of money, let's say a 30% supplement to your typical monthly income is provided, let's say once every two months. One thing that behavioral science tells us is that since these are very poor people, by and large, they do not have the mental space to think about the future, to plan how to save, to plan what sorts of, let's say, agricultural assets they might invest in. But at the point that they're getting this money, they have this momentary window when they might be able to think about these things. But in fact, nothing exists to actually facilitate that thinking at that moment. So the interventions we've been trying, and we've been doing this in a few countries, starting with Madagascar, now Kenya and Ethiopia, most often in collaboration with some colleagues at the World Bank, is to provide the tools at the right moment that will essentially help you think through what you might do with this money that you're receiving. Some of these take the form of, let's say, goal setting and plan making interventions, where as you're getting the money, you're being asked to say, what are your sort of two big things that you would like in the next six months? And some people might say, better food for my children. Some people might say, I've been planning to buy this piece of equipment for my farm, you know, whatever it is. And then, you know, helping them very quickly sort of say, okay, how much money might you need to put aside for that? And can you do that from this transfer payment? And maybe even giving them a pouch in which they can save some time. These are the kinds of interventions that we've been trying in these cash transfer programs. And that's a big area of work for us as well. So do these kinds of activities also, can they also be captured under the term of nudge policies, which we hear a lot about, not just in lower middle income countries or related to people in poverty, but just in general, Are these interventions that you speak about also sort of nudge interventions? I think yes, by and large. There's some fuzziness about the definition of what a nudge is, and people have tried to define various ways. I think, for me, one of the critical features of something which qualifies as a nudge rather than, let's say, a shove, is that it it does need to accord with people's own ideas about what they would like to do. It's not so much at the persuasion end of things as the follow through end of things. And that's where a lot of these interventions are concentrated. So we're in some sense, not at least explicitly telling people you should spend this money on nutrition. We're asking them what what's important to you with this money. And depending on what they say, we're sort of saying, okay, well, then how could you achieve that? I think even more classic nudge intervention might take their answers and actually build something into this system that would not even require them to do this thinking. And and again, going back to where we started, how is poverty different from not being in poverty? Think about something like saving. For many of us, those of us who, let's say, have, you know, white collar jobs where we get paid a certain amount every month or every two weeks, a lot of our saving decisions are sort of predetermined for us. You know, the money goes into an account. We typically have a little bit more than we need. So it's sort of sitting there and we don't actively have to choose to save. It happens. Or we might have a retirement plan set up and some money might automatically go into that. When we're looking at poor people getting cash transfers, they don't have any of that, right? So they don't have 
environment or context that already facilitates some of this behavior. So then we have to create that scaffolding uh, explicitly. But it's possible that maybe over time you could think about, especially as some of these programs become more digital, you could say, you know what, perhaps the money could actually go into two separate pots. And you could still move money between the pots. But what we know is that when mentally somebody has allocated money to a particular use, they tend to try to keep it there. And they tend to try and make do with whatever else they have until it becomes perhaps absolutely necessary. And so they will save more. They will perhaps end up with more assets and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the, I guess, most frequently heard criticisms of these kinds of behavioral interventions that I'm sure you hear quite a lot as well is that in principle, they are entirely focused on the individual or, or a family and ask them to change their behavior. So it's an individualized approach to try to eradicate some aspect of poverty mm -hmm. with little engagements of the structural issues that might be in place. So for example, the reference you made to health services and women not continuing use of contraceptives or continually visiting health services it might also have to do with the quality of the health care that they receive or the way they've been treated in the health clinic for example and of course these kinds of interventions don't look at the supply side of things it's only about the demand side and so I guess some of the criticism says well in a way the argument that it's powering people and taking the blame away from them because we understand this sort of cognitive side of why they take certain decisions or not take certain decisions it could also be flipped around and turn into blame in a way because we have then these behavioral interventions and still they might not change their behavior because they're supply side issues and poverty in and of itself might be more of a structural issue rather than an individual problem so how do you respond to critique like that both on your own idea of agency versus structure but also mm -hmm. the effect that you see of these interventions in the work that you do i think these are absolutely valid questions to be asking and i think what is happening is that the field itself is trying to grapple more with some of these questions so for instance looking at some of the work that we've been doing in health um, it's interesting because quite a lot of the interventions have ended up actually being on the supply side. You're still looking, let's say, at this woman's decision, and I'm putting decision within quotes because, as we know, it's not by any means a fully autonomous or free decision, right? There are many things constraining it, uh, both socially and economically and structurally. Um, what you do find, though, is that what the nudge, if you will, might not need to be on the demand side. So it might be that there's something that the health system could do differently, which would actually make it easier and make it more painless or more convenient for some of these actions to be taken. I think there isn't enough work in the intervention end of things and for a reason is sort of the latter part of what you asked, which is these are deeply structural in some sense, right? We're talking about incremental changes in the life of somebody who is in poverty and really if you take the cognitive scarcity literature very seriously, then it does call, for instance, for I think a lot more by way of redistribution than what we have right now because really what you're saying is people would make better decisions anyway if they just weren't as poor and so how do you make someone less poor well you know that has to involve the transfer of resources from people who have resources to people who don't have resources and i i think it's important for the field to recognize the limitations of what it does and i think you can go, go a certain distance by saying look we recognize structural constraints and we're not going to be able to do anything about them right now and so let's do what we can on the margins which is i think broadly where the field has been but i think it is also important to try and keep pushing home this message which will not be so much by way of designing an intervention this might be more policy advocacy or engaging with policymakers the field has a lot to say about re reasons why 
deep structural change is actually very important, um, but not enough has been done there. Our, at Ideas42, I know that the group that works a lot on domestic poverty in the US is really pushing in this direction now. So thinking about what this means for the narrative around anti-poverty programming, I think is a big chunk of that. And I do think globally as well, there are broader messages in terms of even within the kinds of programs that you have, how do you make them really dramatically reduce the burden they put on people to access them and use them? And I think this applies to straight up, let's say cash programming, but it also applies to health programming. There are a lot of ways in which systems demand a lot of people who, as we recognize, are already overstretched. And that's, of course, then also true on the provider side, because systems demand a lot from, I think, very poorly paid, overstretched, overburdened, let's say, health workers in developing countries. So acknowledging that and thinking about how to remedy that, I think, is very important. But I, I would agree that not enough has been done on those dimensions uh, as compared to what I think needs to happen. What kind of interventions have you been supporting in countries around the world, whether that's high income, low or middle income, in response to COVID, any particular behavioral interventions that have been helpful to help people cope with the socioeconomic fallout and of course also the health implications? So we work, I mentioned earlier, with a lot of these uh, cash transfer programs and many of those have become in some ways conduits for further assistance uh, to people. So either countries have been doing pop-up payments because they recognize that people are out of work and their regular sources of income uh, may have obviously slowed down or don't exist anymore. And so some of our work has just been trying to help the agencies that are doing these, this kind of programming think through ways in which they could use their messaging capabilities, their communications to the beneficiaries to to the extent possible, it is a very difficult situation, so there are no quick answers, but to help them sort of make sure that they're using these resources in ways that are going to help them sustain themselves for a period of time, that they have some reserves that will stand them in good stead if they should need to incur additional healthcare expenditures, but also helping some of these agencies who typically don't do, for instance, health messaging to say, can we also use this to get out messaging about the kinds of precautions that people need to be taking or social distancing, you know, stuff like that. That's been the bulk of it, I think, so far. We've designed some kind of broad guidance that a lot of the programs that work with the World Bank and social protection are using to just to see where there are opportunities or needs for guidance to people around this. But it's, it's quite challenging because what is really happening is that, you know, I was talking about how the cash relieves a little bit of the cognitive scarcity. Well, the rest of your scarcity has just got a lot worse and uncertainty has gotten a lot worse. And so asking people to make well-considered decisions at this time is, is, is a hard thing. Yes, and I think we can all relate to that because around the world, regardless of our situation, we feel from anxious to uneasy about the situation and how to deal with it. And then having to also think about that in relation to income is going to make that even worse, obviously. Exactly. If I think about myself, I have a lot of things that have become uncertain, but at least I'm not worrying about a paycheck yet. And so that's that puts it in perspective, because if you were also worrying about that and how to pay rent and how to put food on the table, then you wouldn't really have the space to do anything else. And I think that is the situation that a lot of people, unfortunately, find themselves facing at this point. Well, thank you, Sagato. That was very enlightening and interesting. Any final words that you would like to add about either behavioral interventions, 
uh, the work that you do or how people can find out about the work that Ideas42 does? You know, I hope that we emerge from this when we do with an understanding of the fact that we've got to set up some of these systems ahead of time for whatever the next crisis is. And I think you can see the countries that have invested in social protection, that have invested in solid primary health care, are just able to cope with something like this way more than countries that haven't. And hopefully it's a bit of a wake-up call for the global community that you can't just wait till crisis strikes to invest in these uh, sorts of very important things. Very good words to end on. Thank you very much for your time and thank you for uh, speaking with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, please follow us on social media. We would also love to receive feedback and suggestions for what you would like to hear more about in future episodes. Please join us again next time.